Hello, listeners, and welcome to another episode of Sex and the Bull City. My name is Matt Kreiner. I'm a licensed clinical social worker and lead associate here at our practice, Bull City Psychotherapy in Durham, North Carolina. And I am thrilled to be coming to you with our founder and CEO of Bull City Psychotherapy, Dr. Sophia Cottle. Hello, Sophia. Hey, everybody. Hey, Matt. Yeah, so this is a really fun episode. I mean, they're all really fun, but today's an exciting one because we're going to be talking about ambiguous grief in the context of, well, all over the place, but maybe particularly in the context of coupleships. And we're going to be talking about what it takes to move through ambiguous grief and, in, and to how to create a just new new trust in, in a relationship that has been uh, bruised in these ways. So um, it's, it's an exciting topic and it's a big topic and I'm particularly excited to talk about it today because Sophia happens to be our, our kind of founder and lead researcher on this topic of ambiguous grief. So this is going to be a fun one. Yeah, thanks Matt. I'm, I'm excited to talk about this also. So ambiguous grief is, is a new area for me to be studying. Um, my research partner Stephanie Sarazen and I, we copyrighted the term. We started doing some work on this over a year ago and, and really tried to figure out how ambiguous grief was different than ambiguous loss, which is a term that was coined by Pauline Boss back in the 90s. Um, we really felt like ambiguous grief was very different than ambiguous loss. Ambiguous loss is, at least at the time, it was really more focused on um, missing children or prisoners of war who were MIA. Um, and we kind of thought that this had very much to do with um, very different ways of how we can see how we can see grief. And so, just sort of. I'll just talk about what the definition is and then we'll talk about it in more like regular terms. But ambiguous grief is the grief experienced from the loss of a loved one who is still alive accompanied by a change or death in the relationship. So we sort of expanded ambiguous grief to be, um, you know, in regards to so many things. For instance, sex addiction. Um, when a partner finds out about um, the other partner being a sex addict, that's definitely ambiguous grief that someone feels because this person is a different person entirely. They might look the same, but the person who you thought they were is not actually that person. So with addiction, we can feel ambiguous grief. We can feel ambiguous grief also when we're in relationships. Um, for instance, if we're, if we're thinking about how we did not get treated in a certain way in our childhood, there's ambiguous grief around that. So we can also have ambiguous grief about, about um, relationships we never experienced. So we've really expanded the, the thought of, of grief and ambiguous grief. Yeah, and I know I've heard from many folks, and I'm one of them, that I find it really helpful to have a term for this experience because it is so very common. You know, you name it as the grief experienced from a loss of a loved one who is still alive, accompanied by a death or a change in the relationship. There are so many instances that, that we experience throughout the course of our lives where that, that happens to us. We lose somebody that we love, but they're still alive. And it can be so painful, and it can be so confusing and complicated, and it's really nice to have a term and some research and some... Uh, just understanding of uh, just a way to understand this experience better 
So I know that as, as we explore ambiguous grief, um, we, sometimes we talk about, and there are lots of spaces where this happens, but we've, you kind of notice the, the five Ds as you, mm-hmm. as you summarize um, kind of common experiences with ambiguous grief. Maybe we can talk about that a little bit to get a better understanding? Yeah, um, definitely. Let me mention what those are. And I just, you know, I meant to say, I just was thinking while you were talking, the reason why I was especially excited about ambiguous grief as a clinician is because I've noticed in this work of sex addiction that I hear about trauma, 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 trauma all the time. And for me, um, as a clinician who I try to use effective best practices, my clients don't sit and live in trauma forever. There is trauma, we deal with trauma, and people move on, and then we're no longer in trauma. And, and so, you know, obviously there are different cases where that's not going to clean up quite that nicely, but in my experience, those cases are, are much fewer. Yeah. So, well, I love yeah. that you put words to that because when you, as you're talking about that, I keep seeing the word stuck. Like, yeah. I hear folks in my room just say, I just, and we can kind of feel it as folks kind of lean into this this trauma space of they're just stuck in just identifying as, as oh, oh my God, I've experienced this deep trauma, and, and they just, they get stuck in it, and it becomes part of their identity. Yeah, that that's definitely true. I've also just heard from many other therapists that you know they that we can also place in our clients um, sort of where we see them, and 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 that also cannot be that helpful to clients. So for me, when I started you know bringing up the term ambiguous grief and expressing that to clients, explaining what it was, it was like I could just see and hear the relief of oh. Grief, yes, and grief in itself implies there's like a light at the end of the tunnel. It, it's it's not a huge nasty diagnosis. It is a temporary state, so it's very empowering. It also exactly describes what people are feeling of who is this person who looks exactly the same, who is not the person I thought he or she was. Yeah, where where trauma is sometimes something we can easily get stuck in. Mm-hmm. Grief is something to be moved through. Yeah. Process, yeah. yeah, yeah. So that was, you know, particularly exciting for me. And then, as I was working on the ambiguous grief, I kept noticing these common themes that kept popping up, and I call them the the four big D's. I, I have another fifth big D, but I, I did that sort of later afterwards. So the five big D's were were just again the major themes of how I saw ambiguous grief kind of categorizing ex- itself. The first one is divorce. Uh, the second one is disclosure, and that's a process that we go through in the field of sex addiction. Probably many other fields do that as well, where, where one partner is disclosing um, whatever the, the behaviors have been in the acting out um, that have really busted up trust in the relationship. The third one is diagnosis. So we can feel ambiguous grief when a loved one has Alzheimer's or Parkinson's or cancer, they are changing before our eyes, that's ambiguous grief, and and the death of a relationship, so again that that fourth big D, um, the end of any meaningful relationship, it could be a friendship, um, siblings, uh, anything, not just a divorce, and then the fifth big D that I really realized was a very common theme in addiction work is disappointment. So, so much of what I hear about as a clinician um, is disappointment for something I did not have. I did not have the safe childhood 
that that I wanted to or my partner did not love me the way that that I was signing up for you know just lots of disappointments of, of things that we just didn't have and so that was um, those sort of sum up how I can categorize ambiguous grief yeah and I think that's really helpful and I have so just personally enjoyed exploring this uh, concept of ambiguous grief applying it to my own experience and really helping it you know, come to life in, in my therapy rooms with my clients. Um, and when you talk about that kind of aha moment that they have when, when we talk about it, it's like, the term that comes to mind for me is it adds legitimacy to their experience. I think it's so very common that we want to, we, we go through this process of what I call like comparative grief, like where somebody will say, well, I shouldn't be this sad about this. Or anytime you hear the shoulds or the shouldn'ts, you know, my, my ears perk up. But it's like, you know, someone will say, I shouldn't be this sad about this. It's, it's just a breakup. Well, okay, it, it's a breakup. You, the person's not dead, but that relationship was really meaningful. And it was maybe the, the central primary attachment in your, in your whole world. And it is absolutely right and, and reasonable to grieve that and recognize that as a process that we're going to grow through. Um, so it really being able to, to name it in this way and frame it in this way adds legitimacy to their experience and sometimes that can be half the battle of really making the progress that they're interested in making so um, super helpful to have these this structure around these ideas so I don't know if there's another another direction you want to go next but I'm, I find myself curious so if we're we've identified somebody as, as experiencing ambiguous grief okay maybe we we can name it and kind of then what how do we how do we help folks move through this process if it's a process to be moved through well that's a really good question right now I'm doing a lot of research around that but so far what I've known noticed has been very helpful is um, again just being able to reframe it as ambiguous grief is incredibly empowering to people there is a sense of again this is something I'm not stuck in this is something I will move through so it's it's very it's it's very empowering. Um, the another way that we that we work through the ambiguous grief is when we are thinking about about another relationship or the ambiguous grief around the loss of that person or relationship. Our focus is entirely outside of ourselves, and it's on the other person or on the other relationship. So the first thing I like to do is really turn that around for focus to be coming back on the person and um, you know an example of this is in the work of sex addiction when we have a partner a lot of people this is not something that we do here but a lot of people really want to put hope in the addicts getting better and I'm gonna hope that my marriage is gonna get back on track or I'm gonna hope that this person is gonna do their work so my life will get together again um, we noticed with ambiguous grief that our partners felt better quicker and it, it was much more there was much more of a foundation of, of authentic um, empowerment when we put that hope in ourselves because to put hope in an outside force we have absolutely zero control over that um, to put hope in ourselves means that we're working towards us and whatever ends up happening for someone else or for our relationship it almost doesn't matter in the end because we are going to be okay because we're putting so much effort into ourselves and so um, the focus on ourselves also doing things like EMDR just the basic understanding of what ambiguous grief is those are all things that I have found are incredibly helpful yeah 
So if I'm tracking you right, it's the first step is let's let's recognize what we're dealing with. We're dealing with ambiguous grief, and if we frame the experience as ambiguous grief, we can understand it as a process to be moved through. Okay, so we get a sense of what we're dealing with, we set about to moving through the process, and we start to, to try to take a look at, okay, where can I, we, we know that we need hope in order to create positive change in our world, so if I need to focus this hope on things I have control over, you know, I need to kind of turn inwards to say, all right, so what do I need, what can I control about this situation, and, and what can I do to kind of enhance my experience of hope in myself and put all my energy towards improving that which I do actually have control over. Exactly, yeah, and then there's, you know, just the obvious piece, if we're still talking about sex addiction, for anyone to put hope in an active addict, that's going to be a heartache, you know, 100% of the time, let's go ahead and say, or 99.9% of the time. Sure. And so that, that, that would definitely not be a direction that we would do here in this practice. So, yeah, it's all about what are the things that we can put hope in, because hope is something that is important for people it looks like but we just have to be very careful that we're putting that hope in a direction that's actually going to end up being hopeful and reality based and it's going to end up strengthening us instead of destroying us because there's nothing worse than seeing a client who has put their hope in an active addict and that addict has crashed and burned and you know their world is gone yeah, absolutely. And, you know, as, as we think back to, you know, what you named as, as the, the themes in the work, you know, the, the five Ds, I think it, it makes a ton of sense to, to do the best we can to focus on that which we actually can control in right. these, these early stages of processing this ambiguous grief. Mm-hmm. Um, even if, so in a lot of these, these cases, like we said, it's the loss of somebody who's still alive. So someone working through a diagnosis of, of a loved one, you know, it's... It hurts, yeah. and and we're grieving the loss of the relationship that was. And the better we can focus on that which we can't control, the faster we can get to that place. Mm-hmm. It frees up energy, and it allows us to. I'm picturing like someone with a, a cancer, Alzheimer's, or Parkinson's diagnosis. The faster we can get to that place where we're, we are noticing and controlling what we can control, it allows us to salvage what you know, maybe the time that's remaining. Right? It allows right. us to lean into what we can. Um, relish and enjoy about the relationship that is today, not just the relationship that was in the past. Right. And so like, you know, a lot of people might be listening. Well, our few viewers, (laughs) our few people who (laughs) listen to us might be thinking, um, hey, this sounds a little bit about like self-care and, you know, the original term of codependency. And it, it is kind of somewhat based in that, that, you know, especially when it comes to, um, sicknesses like Alzheimer's and cancer and Parkinson's that the more that we care for ourselves and focus on ourselves the more love and energy that we do have for others and that's the same is true for addiction work as well the more that we take care of ourselves and give our own self the self-care that we must have and put hope in ourselves then when our partner relapses or is not being particularly nice we have energy to move through that and we're not like hanging on their every word and their every action if that makes sense that, yes and that can be such a hard lesson to learn yeah. for folks you know we, we yeah. cling to this the relationship that was we cling to the hopes we used to have again those externally focused hopes um, you know and I'm, I'm picturing a client I worked with who uh, 
whose parent was, um, you know, suffered through a stroke, and that changed them dramatically for the rest of their life. And you know, the, the we worked through this ambiguous grief process together, and you know, the patient just said, you know, the better care I took of myself, the more there was of me to be present, you know, right. for for my mom, as right. I could be there for her as as she needed me, and I could enjoy those moments and not have so much this active resentment right. about what was or what I wanted to be. Right, and then just the last little piece on this, um, the the counterpart to not being in a place of ambiguous grief is one of depression or PTSD diagnosis, and it can also turn into complicated grief. Um, if, if some of these pieces, like we're talking about hope, if hope is on outside forces and not on ourselves, um, that's when these things can really take, take root. Um, they might be there anyway, um, so I'm not saying that that's what causes it. What I am saying is, is when I started changing this shift in the way that I, the way that I think, the way that I feel, and the way that I work with people, my clients really started changing much quicker, um, feeling better, quick, more quickly, and just completely transforming and getting back to who they wanted to be much quicker, regardless of what the addict was doing. So um, it's just, you know, again, this is just a very empowering paradigm that seems to be resonating with people. Absolutely. Yeah, and, and one of the spaces that we, we specialize in and work with quite a bit is the ambiguous grief that happens when there's a, a traumatic loss within the coupleship, yeah. right? So we're, we're talking about this betrayal trauma, you know, this, this experience of, of sex addiction right? and, and chronic infidelity or, or these big dramatic you know, disclosures of, of, you know, that no one can, can hurt us quite like our intimate partners can, mm-hmm. you know? So mm-hmm. um, we, we know what that looks like and how that works. And when we apply this model to that experience, um, it, it looks a lot like you know what we've already described. That early on, you look inward. You take excellent care of yourself as you get your feedback under you, and, and you start to get more clear-eyed about what you want to do as as you move forward and as the coupleship starts to move forward. Um, and if a couple is has done the work uh, and they're ready to you know if they've kind of come through that first phase of processing their ambiguous grief, well. Then where does that leave them? You know, it leaves them with some choices to make about if and how they want to continue to to grow closer together. And I think what we end up talking about there is trust. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, kind of the way I look at it is that first phase is is really individuals doing their own work. Couples work happens. Like we talked about this last week as like a, a recap in our last podcast. Um, what can a couple really survive sex addiction? Absolutely, yes, they can. It takes a lot of hard work by both people individually, ideally, and by the couple. Um, and so, after disclosures happen, after people are, are in some solid ground and foundation with both of their their own individual recoveries and the recovery of the coupleship, then for me, that's when I like to start working towards an experiential um, process of understanding the ambiguous grief, writing it down, processing it, and and moving through it, moving past it, letting that old relationship go, and then creating the new trust. And, and that's what we've been um, doing here at, at Bull City Psychotherapy. And we do individual intensive to do this that can last a day or two, whatever's needed for the couple. Um, and then sometimes we can do small group intensives with you know two or three or four couples. Yeah. So again, there's that really very intentional, you know, uh, actionable value of, of saying, 
it is really tempting and really common to get stuck in this pain and get stuck in these old stories of, of what we, we thought we deserved or what we wanted to have happen and what just didn't, you know? And anytime our, 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 um, our hopes don't, or our expectations don't meet up with reality, there's going to be some psychological pain associated with that. Right? Yeah. So the faster we can get folks just meeting life on life's terms, the better. And so it's, it's that very intentional value of, okay, let's, let's not stay stuck. Let's acknowledge what is, let's move through and, and move forward with clear eyes. Yeah, and, and you know, the, the way that, that I really like to do this and the way that you and I have created our intensives here is um, really, it's, it's so much more than just, you know, rationally understanding the process, but it's experiencing and feeling the loss of that old relationship that is gone, that's dead, that will never be again. And in a lot of ways, um, that's a good thing, because yes. because we want we want those things that could be dishonest and deceiving or have you know resentments attached to it. We want those things to die and go away. And couples, but when we really start talking about that old relationship being gone, and we do different experiential work, they're ready for it to be gone. I mean, they are they are so ready. That's a powerful insight that folks learn along the way, is or folks really earn along the way, which is, um, you know, we are not trying to recreate what was. Right. Um, what was is what got us here. Right. You know, we're trying to build something stronger. Right. And and of course, you know, we're not going to throw everything out. So what what worked, we're going to keep those things. Mm -hmm. But oftentimes, what's not working again are where our resentments come from. And whatever we need to do so that the couple doesn't get back into their cycle, that's what those are the things that we're gonna get rid of. And, and we're gonna actually experientially create a chosen trust instead of that blind trust that many of us do when we're younger or when we get together with people. It's like, oh yeah, I trust you, but we're not really, under, we don't really have any clue what that actually means. I think that's a really valuable way to dis distinguish those ideas that there's there's this blind trust that it's just you move through the world hoping for the best for people but when we're in the context of healing through this this bruised relationship and this ambiguous grief like we said we go in with really clear eyes it's a chosen trust it's yeah. I know what I want from this and I know what I expect from you and I know what I expect from me in this relationship absolutely and um, I think people those of us myself included who've been married more than once that second relationship that's very significant, whether you're married or not, is a chosen trust. It's like everybody's sitting there with their big boy pants and big girl pants on, or, or whatever pants you have, <laughs> and and you know everybody's having the conversation of um, this is what I had that I do not want, and these are my expectations from you, from myself, for this relationship from here moving forward. And, and it's, it's like that with our couples. Well, and yeah, and part of what I love about, about how just powerful this work is and, and how we go about it here is that, once again, even though what you just described, we're further down the process, there's this foundational element of turning the, the, the lens inward, right? And knowing what, what I expect of myself in this relationship. Mm -hmm. that, and especially if we, if we evoke the idea of trust, it's yes, we're working to enhance the level of trust between two people. But we have a relationship with ourselves, and, and the more, you can't trust somebody else more than you trust yourself. You right. know, we, we need to earn, 
we learn how to trust ourselves and we earn our own level of trust by by having our our actions meet our words right by, by living with integrity by naming and holding boundaries and as that level of trust is earned with ourselves then we get to apply it to others and the bonds just continue to, to deepen yeah and so basically for our our couples intensives we are just Again, after we have grieved the old relationship and, and buried that, and we have some experiential ways that we do that, we, we create the new relationship. And um, there's lots of ways that we do that here as well. And, that, and that's you know, very symbolic for the couple because they're actually, again, they're choosing it. They're, they're coming from a more empowered place, a, a, a wiser place of understanding that hey, this actually does take effort. It's not just gonna happen by luck or just because we say these words to each other. We have to actually put effort in the actual planning of how this is gonna be and take responsibility for it um, because we don't want them to fall back into their old, their old habits, um, which our brain can still attach to if it needs to. So we just really want them to feel that, that ownership and, and feel like that this is a chosen trust that they are willingly wanting to do together and people typically are very excited about it they've done a lot of hard work up until then it's not easy to get there so it's a, right. it's definitely a place for celebration by the time we're done with this it's a huge huge um accomplishment i think yeah no, absolutely it's it's an experience of, of healing and um you know as, as we grow through this stuff there is this sense of of empowerment that this thing that i maybe at one time felt impossible to move through, here I am having moved through it. And yeah. I have, in, in the context of this betrayal and this you know, partnership experience, here I am having moved through it, and I feel closer and more healthily connected to, uh, to my person as a result of this hard work. Yeah, I think it's it's definitely it's a very it's a very cool it's a very cool experience from from what we understand and what we can see. Absolutely. So, does that kind of wrap up our, our high level view of what ambiguous grief is, and and what we've seen to be really effective with folks as as we walk with them, and as they process their ambiguous grief? Yeah, I think this is a nice introduction to ambiguous grief. I like that we tied it in with the couples because we talked about that last time, and. I'm sure we'll talk more about ambiguous grief um, in other relationships. Again, this comes up in any addiction relationship or parent-child relationship. I mean, the, the ambiguous grief is everywhere, and everyone certainly experiences some kind of it. But I really like that's it's my favorite work with couples, and especially in, in the field of sex addiction. So I'm super happy we start with this. Thanks, Matt. Absolutely. Thanks so much for sharing all that expertise with us, listeners. We appreciate you. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Sex and the Bull City. Um, you can find us at bullcitypsychotherapy.com and reach, reach out to us through email and, and all the social media ways. So we look forward to hearing from you and continuing this dialogue. See you next time.